Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome. It's Basic Folk, a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy Howes, the host, the person that talks to you. That's me. Today is a very special episode of Basic Folk featuring First Nation person Jamie Foxx, who is one of the only people in America playing a particular style of fiddle called Métis, from her tribes in Montana. Métis means mixed race, and essentially it means that Jamie has native and European heritage. She grew up on a reservation in Montana, being able to celebrate both sides of her heritage. Jamie explains how the Métis developed their own culture and how that fit into music, especially the fiddle, which is her instrument. She and her brother learned at the feet of a local legend, Fatty Moran, who would make them practice tapes that explained the importance of the music. This is truly a special episode of the podcast because Jamie's mission is to preserve her style of playing and also the insights that she offers on her background. Previously, she has traveled around to camps and festivals teaching the music of the Métis. Jamie doesn't have recorded music out there, so she's not here promoting anything, and it's really just an opportunity to learn something new about her culture and get to know this like truly fantastic person, so honored that she's on Basic Folk today. We're going to take a listen to a clip of Jamie playing the Louis Real Reel, and then we'll get to our conversation with the incredible Jamie Fox on Basic Folk. Jamie Fox, thank you so much for talking to me today. You grew up on the Fort Belknap Reservation in Hayes, Montana, which is a pretty big reservation. And you grew up in the southern part and are part of the Ani and Nakoda tribes and identify with the Métis tribes or mixed tribes. Um, firstly, can you talk about what your living situation on the reservation was like and explain Métis? 
Yeah, um, like living situation, like just how I grew up and our house. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of people have that question because they've never been on a reservation. So they're like, ooh, what is it like? Is it, do you guys still have teepees or is it the poverty stricken place that, you know, you don't have running water? You know, it's always being bombarded with those questions first. So to be asked that question was actually refreshing <laughs> in a way because people already have that thing in their mind of like, oh, it must have been so hard to grow up on the res, you know. But actually in Hayes and the whole reservation, majority of it is what you would see in a small town community in the rest of the United States or North America. Everyone has small houses and... Everyone has a couple cars, and you have running water, we have electricity. But the difference is, I guess, is it's more freedom. Like, you'll see people still riding horses to the store. Or you'll see kids with no saddles on their horses riding around. Um, Are there places to tie your horse up at the store? Uh, no, not really. They'll, uh, just sort of wing it. Yeah, just wing it. And tie it to a tree or something. Yeah. Beautiful background. There's the, we call them the fur caps, but they're the little Rocky Mountains. So Hayes is kind of right at the foothills of these beautiful mountains. And then it's just fields and valleys. And it's, since I moved away, I realized how beautiful it is. I'm like, God, this really is the whole typical, what country people say where they come from, like, Oh, God, this is God's country. It's so mm. picturesque and pure, and the air is fresh. Everything's fresh. It's a, it's a beautiful place. A big part of your identity is being part of the Métis yeah. tribes. Yeah. Um, which is a, it's a very complex explanation, and I was wondering if you could talk about that. It is a complex thing, especially um, being... From south of the medicine line, we call it, being south of the Canadian border. Because of the term Métis, mixed blood. If you, go, if you use that term in Canada, they say uh, it's, a, it's kind of a tribe in itself. It's recognized as a tribal people. But just, you know, an hour south of the border where I grew up, it's in the United States, it's not a tribe at all. A lot of people don't even know the term. Some of it is known as a term, but no one wants to be a part of it because in, in the States, and Montana particularly, it's kind of like you're just Native or you're non-Native. There's no in-between. Mm. But in uh, small communities where I grew up in like Hayes and other places, North Dakota or Minnesota, where they ever have these mixed populations, there's always some little community that will acknowledge that we are Métis. So even though it's not a federally recognized tribe nationally within the United States, we still will refer to ourselves as, yeah, we're Métis. Hmm. Even though I am I am part of a recognized tribes as Aani and Nakoda, and within the government system of us putting natives, you know, stating what we are, even though I'm, I could identify with those, I identify also that I'm Métis. And that's a little tricky sometimes because with the indigenous part of the Métis, you know, we're really trying so much to keep our traditions together because a lot of our people, everyone, 
knows without talking about it what happened to native people in North America. We were slaughtered, almost extinct. And so it's so important to keep the language, the culture of the indigenous side going. So I understand that a lot of natives don't want any recognition of non-native blood in them. But then there's some of us who, who do like myself. I like both sides. And I'm hmm. comfortable saying that I'm both. And I grew up in a community where it was comfortable to be both. And that was... Like, when you say... Sorry to interrupt. When you say both sides, you mean like the native side and then the European side? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I am most comfortable, I guess, if you had to pick sides. And maybe I'm saying that because it's so ingrained in us as indigenous people in the States to say that I am only native or... Or I don't know. It's the identity of like, what are you? What did you grow up in? I grew up very in a very native population. So I do feel more at ease being like I'm native. But also I know I'm I'm not. I'm mixed with French and Scottish. But I don't really know like the French culture or the Scottish culture as much as I do the native culture. But with the music and the dancing we grew up with, with the fiddle tradition, that's where I'm like on the fence post of like, oh, I'm, I'm actually both. The Métis are descendants of First Nation women and fur trade workers, the men, the, of European ancestry, which started in the 16th century. What significance is there that the Métis maternal ancestry is native versus paternal being European and do you think that translates into the style of fiddle that developed? Yeah, I think it definitely, you know, developed a music that was, it's familiar, but it's new. It's just like when First Nations mixed with another blood type, maybe it's Scottish or any type of European who are fur traders, that you got two cultures that collide together. And... Us being humans, we have somewhat similarities, yet there's that little spice that you add different things. So if you listen to Métis fiddling, you could. I always have people say, like, oh, I could definitely hear it sounds very Irish or Scottish or it sounds like a, like a French-Canadian, but it's different. And they all say, what is that difference? And I was like, well, I think that's that difference of that different sense you're hearing is the native sense of um, European music. We say we take a, one of their reels or their jigs, but we either add some beats or we leave out some beats, and we don't do that intentionally. It's just how we hear the music as indigenous people. And so like- Is on, there any way to explain that a little bit more? Yeah. And this is like, this is not from research at all. This is just from what I think growing up. <laughs> like, so it's nothing. I didn't read or study anything about this. It's just from playing music and hearing other musicians. The best way to describe it is, um, so on the European side, they have music that's written down and sheet music. And there's rules to those that kind of music. There's bars and so many notes in a bar. And it's squared up to be, you know, a structured music that has parts to it. 
But if you go to the indigenous side of music of North America, and that's just generalized too, like the European music stuff, it's, it's infinite. There's no structures or rules, really. And it varies from tribe to tribe. The songs we sing and the music is um, very free. Like say a song we have, we'll have three parts to it. The beginning could be really long. And then the middle, the big part of the story, maybe the, maybe the body of the story, the second part is very short, but the ending is longer. Or it could be, it's varied. It depends on who wrote it and what kind of tune it is. There's no rules. So when natives heard this fiddling for the first time, I bet it was so different. And eventually with the mixing of cultures, some natives got some fiddle fiddles and heard these tunes, learned them as best they can. But with that mentality of having no rules, you know, we make up our own sense of the tune. Like, ah, mm-hmm. oh, we don't need this part. Actually, I'll add a few more to this part. It sounds mm-hmm. better. And with that, everything changes in the structure of music. You get different syncopation. You get different... Maybe you, we've changed these 6-8 jigs to very crooked reels. Maybe we needed a tune that we could step dance to, so we changed a tune for that. Even though it's the same tunes of these European immigrants, we changed it into our own culture. That's what Métis music and culture is. It's just a mixture of the two coming together. Um, I heard you talking um, on the podcast Get Up in the Cool, which is a very fine podcast. Um, You're talking about your parents' experience where your mom was mixed and kind of, it sounds like she grew up ashamed of her identity, but your dad knew about the Métis culture and helped her realize that there was value to Métis contributions. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about how he helped her realize that there was worth in the identity of her heritage and then how did those actions translate for you and your brother's cultural, cultural identity? Yeah, I think, so starting with my mom's side, see, and that's when I talked in the beginning of like, what is it in terms of Métis and my, and I said, I'm on the fence post. Well, to be on the fence post, I'm comfortable now. Whereas my mom sitting on the fence post of being half native, half European, 30 years ago, it wasn't comfortable for people to do that, to be that. It's either one or the other. So she grew up in a native community, but she had lighter skin. So some natives would say mean things to her. Then she'd go on the other side of the fence. The non-natives outside the reservation, she looks native, not fully, but she is part native. Not get, She didn't get treated that good either. So it's like getting ping-ponged. Who am I and where do mm. I fit in? Yeah, where do I belong? Yeah. And then my dad, on his side, my dad is very the stereotypical native man, very dark. You know, you take one look at him, you know he's he's indigenous. So for him, that's he's comfortable who, knowing who he is. He is indigenous. He grew up on the res. He grew up in the community and the culture. So for him, he's in the safety zone of being like, he knows who he is. He doesn't have to be afraid of it. But he grew up in Hayes, too, same as my mother. And he saw the people who were 
mixed blood and he traveled to North Dakota and he saw their fiddling traditions and he's like, oh, this is a, just a part of the culture. But he didn't have to deal with people making fun of him for being it. So when my parents got together, I think my mom started being comfortable with who she was. And it, we didn't start playing because of my mom or anything. We just, my brother and I just started playing because it, the fiddling was around the community. And we, we, you see it at the local dances or basket socials or wakes or anything in the community. There was always fiddling. What's a basket social? It's like a community gathering for, say, if someone needs to raise money. So it's a small, closed community, not a lot of money. But if someone has like a hospital bill or sick, the community members will make these like baskets. I don't know if it's, you know, like gifts in there or lunches or picnics, and then we'll auction them off. But in between the auctions, we would have like, um, you know, some fiddling and then we'd have some square dancing. Then we'd have some step dancing. Then we'd have an auction. And all the money raised during the basket social goes to the person you're helping. That sounds great. We'd see it all over the place, and and my brother and I just started with the local fiddlers in Hayes, and then we started playing music through from them. And that's when my mom realized, like, who she really was. She was very comfortable, and she was excited that her kids were playing the music of the Mixed Bloods and the Métis, and she didn't have to feel like she was fighting her identity. She knew who she was at that point. And so it was kind of a good awakening for her. And, uh, you know, it wasn't planned out, like, we'll play fiddle because of her. It just happened. Yeah. You talked about this a little bit. Um, What's wild to think about is that the tradition of Métis fiddling is actually, like, relatively, like, new. Like, it's, like, 300 years old, maybe, Um, when it comes to when you look at native culture, traditions, ceremonies, which are much older. Um, How is that fine line for you in wanting to preserve this newer tradition alongside the ancient native traditions of your tribes? And how does your community feel about it? Um, Well, if we're talking about the community in the town of Hayes and Fort Belknap, there's more emphasis on, on the language and the old ancient as you would say, ancient traditions or older things, because you definitely don't want those lost. Those are more dear and it's like antique pieces. You really want to keep the antique because the newer stuff, it's like, it'll stay for a bit. Hmm. So like the language, the ceremonies, the dances, those are very important on the reservation to keep going. But for the fiddling... Uh, it's kind of died out, and there's many factors on why that's a fiddling tradition has died out. You know, there's old-time people music, and it's a European kind of thing. It's not really, I want to say, as important. It's still very important on the reservation, I feel. A couple of years ago, I did a, um, I got a grant to do a little fiddle camp for six weeks in Hayes. And the community responded so well to it, more than I thought. A lot of kids came, a lot of parents were involved, and I got many compliments on 
I'm glad that you're doing this. It's something for the kids. It's also something to bring out kids to say, like, Métis, it's okay to be mixed. Hmm. Because I feel like on our res, we're very comfortable with who we are, and we're very, the sense of being Ani and Nakoto, you know, now in our generation, we're very proud to say there's nothing shameful at all saying that you're indigenous, hmm. as like before. So it was, um, with being the Métis fiddling on the res, it, I feel it is important, and they supported a lot of it. It sounds like when you and your brother were kids, the tradition of Métis fiddle was almost disappearing back then, too. So it seems like it's been endangered for a little while. Yeah. And I think every community, every Métis community maybe has gone through that. God, you go up to Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, even North Dakota, it's starting to come back. There's a lot of young kids doing a lot of step dancers, mm. a lot of festivals. Whereas even in those communities, maybe 10, 20 years ago, it was only the elderly playing it. And it was getting a little scarce, but now it's booming. Mm. So here's a question. Métis is all over North America, different um, in, in different reservations? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And, it, and then that's, um, see, that's... Uh, that's a complicated issue, too, to go into of um, people like, well, what is Métis? Is it a tribe? Where is the reservation? Where do they live? In reality, if you think of indigenous cultures of North America and European cultures, where they collided, that's everywhere. That's all of Canada. That's all of the United it's States. It's going to be like maybe Maybe hundreds of subcultures of Métis? Exactly. Yeah, it's very... Um, it depends on who you are, I guess, if you're comfortable saying you're Métis. Hmm. Uh, hmm. There's people in Washington State that identify as Métis in Idaho and Montana and North Dakota, really more northernly along the borders of uh, Canada. A lot in Canada... Um, there's more than you think, because who really it's... goes to reservations? I always ask someone in the, if I'm playing in an audience, like, does anyone have a friend who's indigenous or have hung out on a reservation? And I always get barely maybe one or two hands, you know, hmm. like who really has gone and talked with a Métis or indigenous person? Not a lot of people, because it's this whole mentality of, being scared of one another or maybe I shouldn't talk to them because I'm I'm white and they don't like me or indigenous people don't want to talk to non-native people or they look indigenous but they look I shouldn't ask them if they're Métis maybe they'll get offended you know it's a, it's a hard talk to bring up and I think a lot of mm. people just don't talk to each other about it totally that's another podcast episode yeah, <laughs> in itself, yeah. yeah. All right, let's talk about little five-year-old Jamie running around the res pretending to play fiddle. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about why you were drawn to the instrument at a young age? I think just seeing it in Hayes, like when my parents would go to those basket socials or something or... Awake. Your dad, does your 
Do your dad plays? Does your mom play as well? No, my mom doesn't play any any music. My dad played guitar, and he started when my brother and I started playing to back us up. Get that family band together. <laughs> no, the nerdy family band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, I guess my brother, well, I wanted the fiddle first, and I, my parents got me one for Christmas, and, uh, but it sat around for another good five years until my brother picked it up and he could remember all the tunes being played by the fiddlers around. And then my parents were like, oh, he has an interest. But of course, that was my fiddle. Right. And I had this. It's your fiddle. Yeah. I had this like, <laughs> that was my idea. So then we start going to the neighbor's house and the other fiddlers around, and particularly um, this guy named Fatty Moran, who I think he was the best fiddler in Hayes at the time. So we would go there, and he would, you know, it's not like he taught us how to read music or sit down with us. He'd just play tunes, and then he would play a tune and look at you and be like, now it's your turn. <laughs> and, you know, you just played as he played along, and you'd pick it up by listening. Or when you'd play at the dances, you would sit behind him and try to play along with him. In his, in an old-fashioned man sense, he was, you know, really proud, but he would never let you, he wouldn't let you know it kind of mm. thing. But he took the time to have us come to his house and play tunes with us. And he's also Métis. Yeah, he's Clearly, because he, yeah. yeah. I also heard you talk about he would make you cassette tapes um like practice tapes yeah he would um he was definitely an artist of like poetry he did bronze work he did paintings everything and his jokes were even weird artist way and he would we have these old cassette tapes where it says you know like december 27th uh, 1999 and, you know, there's 45 minutes on each side of the cassette tape. And he would just go on and on and tell stories about a tune and play it for like five minutes. Then he'd go to the next tune and tell you, tell about it and play it for five minutes. And the intention he would say on the tape was like, there's your practice tapes and those are the tunes you'll learn next, next mm. time you come. And Do you still have those tapes? Yeah, we do. You should, I wonder if Smithsonian folkways would probably be interested in those. Yeah, that would be interesting. For now, yeah. I think I better just try to um, preserve them as digitally as possible before I wait on anybody. But... Would you guys call him, so his name is Fatty Moran. Yeah. Would you guys call him Fatty? Yeah. Well, like the, that's, um, I don't know if it's small town culture, but it's definitely native culture. Everyone has a nickname. So fatty was not fat at all. Oh. <laughs> or like it's very, uh, I don't even know how to explain our humor. But anything that you could, anything that happens in life on the reservation, even if it's the worst thing ever, you'll find humor in it. So everyone has this nickname that doesn't make sense. But to us, we just know from our native humor, we know what it's about. So it's funny. Even if that person don't like it, kind of way. 
like native humor if we're not making fun of you we don't like you you know everyone's joking yeah. constantly and you're finding the humor and everything and i think sometimes when people go through rough times in life and for us as indigenous people that was for decades one of your coping mechanisms is just finding the humor instead of being mm. sad about it so going back to fatty there was a lot of joking and even his nickname was joking so his real first name was marvin marvin moran but no one called him that we he was just known as mm. fatty the fiddle player What's your nickname? Oh, I have a real nice nickname. It's no one really calls me it that much, but it was my grandma Ruth, Ruthie, Baby Ruth. Your Baby Ruth? Yeah. Nice. I'm interested about like the style of Métis fiddle playing can be like fairly serious, fairly solemn, but also like relatively playful. How do you feel like your personality has been shaped by this particular playing style? And then also in thinking about the person who taught you the playing style? Uh, like how is my, how I see myself because of my playing or mm -hmm. how it influenced me as a person? Yeah. Um, oh, that's kind of a another deep question <laughs> <laughs> I am not letting you off the hook uh, if you want to start with some of like the serious ones I mean we have a few tunes that are uh, like you know minor tunes that are dark sounding uh, like there's a tune called Sitting Bull or um, or this tune called Louis Riel after a Métis leader named Louis Riel. When you play those tunes, you could definitely feel the hurt or the sense of, like, you knew that they, they meant something to Métis and Indigenous people. Like, everyone knows who Sitting Bull is, the Sioux chief, and you hear that power of, like, what you would imagine a Native chief would be like. So when you play that tune, you have that in your image, in your mind. You're like, oh, i got to put some power behind this because it does mean something. Hmm. But then there's tunes that you just play for like step dancing or square dance where you'll play like a, a reel and it's obviously you're playing for a dancer and you're watching them dance. So you're trying to be playful with them and you're... Uh, you know, it's an interaction between the fiddling and the dancing. and hmm. Just like in many other fiddle cultures. Uh, but for me to be shaped as a person, I guess it's... And as my mom, when she found her identity, when you, I think when Métis musicians play, it's like the best, top of the world. You know who you are, it's fun, and you're so glad to be playing. Like every Métis fiddler or musician in general, you could just see on their face, they're like, they're so at ease with themselves. Because hmm. it's the natural thing to do. I don't know, it's maybe a little over the top, but that's how I see it. Because 
when people play music, it's it's emotion. Um, on the phone when we talked earlier, you told me a little bit about the tribal card, where you have this card that says what tribe and what percentage native you are, and you have to have a certain percentage to get, it seems like, the very limited benefits. How do people feel about the card and what has been the evolution of people's relationship to tribal cards oh yeah i mean that's a whole identity thing too and just the idea of like listeners like what do you mean tribal identity it's like uh, an identification card say it's like a driver's license but for natives both canada and north america our governments will issue you uh, a tribal id it says what tribes you are says how much blood you are, if you are a, a registered Indian. It's kind of like if uh, you were at a horse trading show and you're like, here's my horse. It's uh, it's this much blood type and it's a pure blood mm. horse. Whereas um, we're the only humans in the entire world where a government states who someone is on their identity. Sure, on like the census, you could say, oh, I'm Caucasian, or maybe you do a little ancestry tree and you say, oh, I'm part German, but they don't have a card stating I'm five-eighths this culture, five-eighths this mm. blood, but we do. And as a on the native side of it, we're, you know, it's kind of a fun card to have and say like, yeah, I am, I'm a real indigenous person, see? But on the other hand, it's kind of like, why do we need this card? Like, this is kind of a weird thing to be carrying around. Yeah. And then, of course, on the non-native side, the question I get asked a lot, too, is, um, oh, that's your benefits card. Well, there's not as many benefits as you think there is. Sure, if I wanted to live on the res and build a house where my house is, you don't have to pay the like what you do pay in a town like the state tax but everything else i still have to pay for water so i have to pay for electricity still have to have insurance same thing as a normal person i don't get free money you don't get anything with it other than the the idea of like oh this is where my home the home of my people get to stay on this very small reservation that's all it really is hmm. I got out, like a lot of Fort Belknap people, you get out of the reservation for a while. A lot of us join the military, serve for four or more years, we come back, and we get a job, and it's just like, doesn't matter what color skin we are, we're doing the same thing that the people do off the reservation. Still paying for things, still paying our dues, still... Anyway, that card does not give us the freedom that people think it does. You will often do demonstrations, workshops, camps, um, teaching the tradition of Métis fiddle to non-natives. What has been your experience with people's reactions to seeing a First Nation person playing fiddle in those environments, and how hard has it been to break people's biases? Um, majority of the time when I get invited to go somewhere like at a music festival or music camp, it's always a great experience because it's very open-minded people at a folk festival and they're 
interested in learning a different culture. And it's always, um, I feel so welcome. Like, it's a great experience. But then there's some places where, like, you go to, like, a cowboy festival. And you look around and you're the only indigenous person there. And you have the sense of, like, I don't know if it's anyone could relate to it. If You know, you feel like a fish out of water. And it's not the same welcoming feeling of of people being directly interested. It's kind of there of like, what's this native person doing here? And that's where the questions come up of like, well, what do you get for free with your card? Do I need a passport to get on the reservation? Fiddling's not a native tradition. Why do you play it? So then, you know, it's kind of irritating to a small degree, but also most of all, I think like, you know what, this is, this is the, perfect chance to have a workshop and I could definitely talk to him about it and we don't have to get mad and it's not a political thing it's just a person-to-person dialogue you know I always try to start out with my background of it's kind of a crutch I use but but it's an easy relatable thing is like well I did 10 years of military service now I'm out and when they hear that an indigenous person has military service, it's kind of like, oh, well, you didn't just, in their mind, they think I would just stay home and not do anything because I have a tribal ID card and I get stuff for free. So then it kind of has this little bridge of, oh, there's some similarities. Mm -hmm. Oh, this fiddling is just like, I was like, who's, who's Irish? Who's Scandinavian? Who's Whoever heard this type of fiddling and people will raise their hand. I'm like, well, this is the same music of that, but with the indigenous sense on it. So then they feel included of like, oh, that's my culture playing fiddle, but with a native woman putting her own touch on it. It's not scary or it's not Mm. as weird as they would imagine. This might be a weird question, but I'm wondering about like what kind of clothing you wear um, when you're doing these presentations or if you put any thought into like all right I'm gonna wear an outfit that like I mean in watching videos of you and looking at pictures of you you are like uh, like very hip style Um, but do you intentionally pick out an outfit if you're like all right I'm gonna be around a whole bunch of non-native people um no I think I try to just keep it simple and like do the whole Johnny Cash thing where where black looks good on stage, you know. (laughs) But the one thing I will always wear at a presentation is I'll wear the Métis sash. So the Métis sash, it's red and has many different colors weaved in it. And and that is the symbol of the Métis and the mixed blood people. They have their own style. We have our own style of sash, whereas a lot of cultures in the world have their own sashes or patterns or their tartans or something that represents their culture, the Métis sash is is ours. So I'll always have that red sash on. And it depends on how you wear it. Some women, they'll wear it over their shoulder, and then they tie it at the waist, and men will wear it at the waist. But where I grew up, this old cowboy showed me how to wear the sash, and he said, you always, you wear it at your hip. And maybe people will say that's wrong or something, but for him, 
to tell me where to put it. Um, I'll keep that little tradition for myself, and I like wearing it at the, the hip. Now I want to talk about airplanes. <laughs> you mentioned that you spent 10 years as an aviation mechanic in the military. Um, I'm interested in how you got into that line of work, like where your passion for flying developed. Yeah, the where it started was in Hayes, the Fort Belknap Reservation. Um, I would see planes go by. And here's one thing for the listeners that's kind of funny is um, military air practice airspace, like Air Force, all military aviation. If you look at their airspace practice area, it's they're always over Indian reservations. Because, you know, we're not really doing much with the airspace there ourselves. But it's kind of messed up in a way. But for me, I thought it was amazing. I would see these F-16s, B-1s. I would see them so low that I remember riding my bike on the gravel road with the airplane. And I see this plane tilt to the side. And I literally was waving at the pilot as he was waving at me. What? <laughs> and I was thinking, like, I love this. I think this was the coolest thing. And it's kind of, you know, as this girl on the res, and these planes are, like, right above our houses. It's kind of messed up, but <laughs> I thought it was cool. So I always had this idea. Same thing as when I was five. I was like, I'd like to be a fiddle player. I'd like to do something with airplanes. While I was in high school, I enlisted in the Air Force. And did uh, aviation maintenance, and uh, now got out, kind of finding myself what kind of career I'm going to do, and now I'll uh, be starting uh, flying lessons soon in, in September. Do you have aspirations to like fly commercial? You know, kind of this year of, um, you know how everyone has this idea of like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, everything in life that I planned never worked out, but it always worked out for the better. So I'm just going in there as like, I'll get my private's license, do my instrument rating, get commercial, just move on up and see what happens. I have no idea. I'm just going to enjoy it. So you're learning to fly a plane, but can you already like, have you flown a plane? I've taken lessons earlier when I it was in high school. But uh, the money ran out pretty quick, so I have a, I can imagine. I have a little bit. I'm not, definitely have to start from scratch again. You're the second guest on this podcast who is interested in flying. Oh, cool! I don't know if you're. Are you familiar with Livingston Taylor? He's James Taylor's brother. Oh, I no, I don't. He is. Uh, he I think has his own plane and. The James Taylor is like very well known for um, being on Martha's Vineyard, which in Massachusetts, it's an island. Yeah. So I interviewed him and we were talking about being a pilot. And I asked him like how long it takes to get to Martha's Vineyard. And he's like 40 minutes. And it doesn't matter if there's traffic because you can just, you know, you can fly. So there's yeah. no traffic. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I hope you get your own airplane. Yeah, one day. We'll Soon. See. <laughs> well, um, before I let you go, we do this very silly thing on the podcast called the lightning round. Okay. Where I'm going to ask you very surface level, easy, fun questions about yourself. All right. Are you ready? All right, I'm ready. 
Okay, great. What was the first song you learned on the fiddle? Pretty embarrassing. Probably a tune called Rubber Dolly. That doesn't seem embarrassing. <laughs> if, you, like if you play fiddle, you know. years old? Yeah. If you play fiddle, you know it's embarrassing. <laughs> Is it like, you know, oh, I learned Hot Cross Buns. <laughs> exactly, on the recorder. Like one of those, it's like yeah. the equivalent on the fiddle. Yeah. Um, do you like Batman or Superman? Batman. What is your karaoke song? Sweet Caroline. Uh, besides now, what has been your favorite age? Oh, good. Probably 17. What was happening then? Uh, you know, you still have the freedom of being a kid without the bills and the adulthood. Yet, you don't have to tell your parents exactly where you are, you know. Right. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Um, probably French press and rum for half and half. Nice. First album you bought with your own money? Probably, <laughs> this is another embarrassing thing, was probably Destiny's Child. <laughs> That's not embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. I mean... It seems about right. Yeah, you know? yeah. At least it wasn't like um, Limp Biscuit or something like that. <laughs> L, Weird Al or something. Yeah, well, Weird Al would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, what was your first concert? First concert was uh, Bob Dylan, actually. Whoa. Yeah. What did you think? It was great. My best friend Danielle and I were 16, and we wanted to go to a concert, and of course we're just teenagers, so... My folks took us to the concert. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Cool. The last book that you read? Oh, uh, probably <laughs> a manual how to set up Apple TV or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's, about... That's a good answer. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Another bias thing is I didn't realize it till I left home, but my parents' ranch in Hayes, Montana, it's just no people, no pollution, no noise, just hills and mountains. It's the, the most beautiful place. Stars must be pretty good, too. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah. Well, great, Jamie. This has been so awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time, and I've really enjoyed talking to you yeah and thanks for asking and like and we should thank um devin devon leger i call him devon yes. but i think he says devin but i always I think he's got a little accent Is in he? his name I, yeah. I think one time i said hey devon he's like oh it's devin i was like okay devon so <laughs> you got it devon <laughs> <laughs> yeah he sent the he email should... introducing so yeah thank you so much devin and um, you should call Jamie, Jamey. <laughs> yeah, Jamey or something. Yeah, Jamey. All right, cool. Well, let me know what my nickname is going to be <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, if you so choose to give me one. Yeah, I'll give you one. Right. Well, thank All you. All right, thanks. Basic Folk, produced by Laura McCarthy this week. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Thanks, Lindsay. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. 
I'm Cindy Howes. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all the episodes of Basic Folk uh, wherever you get podcasts, and you can find all of them at my website, cindyhouse.net. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.